I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Bella Lack, the conservationist, campaigner, writer, filmmaker, board director, and foundation ambassador. It's an impressive CV for the most storied of careers, but in Bella's case, she's achieved it all before most people have even got going with their own careers. At only 19, Bella has carved out a name for herself as an inspirational, respected environmental campaigner. Her first book, Child of the Anthropocene, tells stories from young people at the heart of the climate crisis and has received plaudits, including the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, and the legendary environmentalist Jane Goodall, among many others. It's been described by the Green Party MP Caroline Lucas as an inspirational manifesto for change and the naturist Steve Backshall as a remarkable and important book, adding that Bella believes she can change the world. And I believe her. Bella, welcome to Changemakers. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get on to changing the world, you've just, you're, 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 you're going through your A-level celebrations at the moment. Yeah, well, I finished my A-levels about two weeks ago. So it's been, it was also, it coincided with the book coming out. So it's been kind of a bit of a dichotomous lifestyle of trying to celebrate A-levels whilst also, you know, doing these serious interviews mm. um, about the, the biggest challenge and threat to humanity's survival. Mm. I listened to your brilliant TED talk and I was I was taken with, I mean, A, the creativity of it in terms of taking us into a future world and the problems that we may well be about to inherit. But there were some phrases that really, really stuck with me. You know, we, we talked about, you know, you, you were in love with the natural world and, and a deep reverence for that, but an understanding that that wasn't shared by all being less of a revelation and more of what you called an absolute transformation. Let's talk about that transformation. So the transformation for me, when I, my passion for nature kind of transformed into a concern. And I would almost say, you know, a deep fear of what we're going to face as a species was when I was about 11 or 12. And it sounds, you know, it sounds like a big revelation for a, for an 11 or 12 year old, but for, for many children now across the world, they're having this revelation earlier mm. and earlier because of social media, providing access to all the this information distilled down into kind of terrifying tweets of you have 12 years left to, to prevent catastrophic climate change. So for me, the revelation was about one species. It was about orangutans and palm oil because I was obsessed with this species. And I watched a video about how palm oil was affecting orangutans. And it's interesting how it began on completely the opposite side of the world, my revelation. And then now I'm recognizing actually how ecologically impoverished the UK is just on my in my back garden and you know in the countryside that that are essentially ecological wastelands just outside our back doors but yeah it began with that and then I got onto social media and I was telling everyone about palm oil and some of the stuff I said at the beginning was absolutely incorrect and that's another thing with environmentalism and anything to be honest where you're asking people to make change is that Mm. you are going to be wrong because it's not binary it's so much more complex than you think I want to go back to what you just said there, because I think it's a very interesting point you raised about people becoming much more activists in their lives at a younger and younger age. And it must be more than just awareness. I mean, I have two two young daughters, 11 and nine, who are incredibly focused on on the issues that, that you're raising and are indeed, you know, sort of very sort of active in their in their views and what they want to see done. And in terms of the kind of, I suppose, the awareness and the sort of the, the coming of uh, you know the, the sort of turning that awareness into action how do you see it in terms of your own experience in terms of well what kind of activated you from from being in a position where you might say well actually I've got exams to do I'm at school so I'm thinking no I want to stand up and be counted on this issue I tend to as a person but I think this is also kind of a generational 
thing that we've seen with the environmental crisis. And in fact, every generation at this kind of liminal coming of age period seems to have their issue, whether it was the ozone layer or what there does seem to be a defining issue for each generation. And for me, I think turning anxiety around what's going to ha- happen into action rather than apathy just seems so much more beneficial. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the point of sitting at home worrying about what's going to happen? Because I think the pe- the young people I've spoken to, the most active ones, actually, contrary to what you would think, tend to be less worried about what's happening and less apathetic because they're channeling that anxiety what's called eco-anxiety is a phrase that's been coined to kind of define you know this fear in young people they they turn that into action and then the most hopeless young people I've spoken to tend to be the ones who feel like they can't do do anything and therefore aren't doing anything and is that because they haven't been provided with pathways to action maybe they're not yet aware of the existing communities that could help them to kind of amplify their voices I don't know but yeah I think it's just so much more productive turning that anxiety into action and many young people are doing it and it's becoming this incredibly momentous kind of explosive development of action which has been incredible to watch from when I was 11 and 12 watching almost seeing almost no young people involved to now almost everyone at school and outside of school in activism circles but also outside of that is talking about the environment and the climate crisis. How has um, Greta Thunberg influenced you? I think as an individual so I was focused before before I got involved with the climate strikes I was focused mostly on biodiversity and wildlife protection started with the orangutans as I said and then Greta kind of catalyzed this global climate strike and I think what she did was provide that community and that support Mm. and before I was doing many things alone in the sense that I didn't really recognize the importance of working with others to do this and now it's I realize how integral that is because there's no way as individuals we can focus on everything that's going wrong with in terms of how we're destroying the environment the most effective way for an individual to make action I think is to kind of find your niche and have as big of an impact there as possible rather than trying to have a tiny impact on as many different issues as that exist because with the environmental crisis as an umbrella term you know there's plastic pollution there's sea level rise there's air pollution i i, I asked a question about greta because obviously as you well know you you've been described as the british greta thunberg and, and, I, and, I, and I, I realize that you know different areas of focus but in terms of the ability to capture a voice to capture a mood to capture a moment and then create a movement from it I mean, that is something which has been done with exceptional power and advocacy. And I I was interested as much about how you sort of see lessons that you're learning from others around you in terms of how you make your niche, make make the cause, as you've talked about there, one that gets front of mind, one that gets attention. I think what Greta does and what the youth movement have done is provided a face and a personification of information which is typically really kind of absent and unengaging and dry and like the IPCC report I didn't read the whole thing I read the summary but the majority of people are never going to sit down and even read the summary of the IPCC report despite how important it is to the future of our species and what we really need is to have these faces that personify that information and what I kind of tried to do with with that book was I spoke to young people on the front lines of the environmental crisis and told their stories because I'm not a scientist I can't speak as a scientist Um, but what I can do is kind of use my place as a young person to relate to other young people around the world who are already facing the impacts of the climate crisis and tell their stories right we relate to stories as 
a species. And I think it is through that emotional connection that people will make change. Right. So so, so this is the book, Children of the Anthropocene, and it's a story-based sort of narrative. Um, let's go into it a little bit in terms of what readers can expect when, when they open its pages. So it's separated into different chapters, like overconsumption, like plastic pollution, rising sea levels. And there's one on intersectionality. And each chapter I speak to different young people who I would say are mainly involved in that area. And the idea is to use that those stories, there are probably about two or three per chapter. And then it all kind of tails into a manifesto at the end of each chapter. Mm. And, you know, I could do a chapter on plastic pollution, list the statistics and what's happening. I don't think this is just a personal thing. I try not to speak on others' behalf, but I think this is kind of something I can say for everyone is that we relate to individuals. We've seen that with Cecil the lion and Harambi the gorilla. People got so upset when the gorilla was shot and when Cecil was shot by trophy hunters. Although there are thousands of lions and gorillas being killed through deforestation and habitat loss, which we don't really think about. And the reason they captured our imagination was because they're individuals. And it's actually a thing called psychological numbing, which we saw with coronavirus at the beginning when we saw individuals plastered on social media Mm. who were affected. People became incredibly upset. But then the more and more that die, you kind of... You have to overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you have to protect yourself. People have become a bit numb to the environmental crisis, I think, despite how severe it is. There's no point. So so, so can a book like this sort of repersonalise it? Can it make it an emotional issue again, do you think? Yeah, that that was the aim of it, yeah. Mm. And you've also, I mean, you've sort of, I've I've really enjoyed reading some of the things that you've you've spoken about and and actually how you've sort of taken the battle to people that, you know, sort of write write people like you off as the snowflake generation generation you've said well actually there's a bit of a you know it's quite a powerful and positive term Uh, tell us a little bit about 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 how you're campaigning about how you see it but let's start there let's start with 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 snowflakes snowflake it's just such a funny kind of dismissive term for young people i mean first of all snowflakes it comes because the intention is to say young people are a bit fragile and you know worried about the environment being a bit vulnerable I think there's something incredibly powerful in being that vulnerable to what's happening and that that kind of upset by the fact that we're destroying our future. Mm. And I think to not be a snowflake in this situation would be a bit a bit psychotic. And another thing is, you know, snowflakes do accumulate into snowstorms. And it's I love a- that. That's the bit I loved. I, I'm so glad you said that because I thought the idea of the snowstorm was so powerful. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a bit of a cheesy analogy, but you know, it's it's what's happened and. There's always this debate about individual change versus systemic change, but individuals accumulate and have an impact on the system. Mm. And that shouldn't be a barrier to action. You need to recognise that, yes, you need to make changes in your own life and then you need to upscale them through your community and through social media so that we have an impact on political and social and economic structures. Is the storm, I mean, I mean, let's keep the snowstorm as, as the idea. I mean, I mean, I mean, to what degree is that? I mean, are there enough snow snowflakes to create the storm, I guess? I mean, is, is that happening now in, you, in your view? I mean, there are definitely enough snowflakes. It's just, are their voices being amplified? Are they in the right areas? There are so many young people I could have spoken to for this book who I just didn't have the chance to speak to and who are doing grassroots things in their community, but whose voices aren't being amplified mm. because embarrassingly you know it's, it's voices like mine and similar def- demographic to mine who are being heard again and again and 
it's fine we have similar messages but I think the best way to solve this is through a diversity of voices so whilst you know I wrote the book I wanted to to speak to these other young people because I'm getting a bit repetitive already you know I'm 19 I'm saying the same things I've been saying <laughs> since I was 15 and I kind of wanted a refreshing view to speak to other young people there are just so many it was India and in different African countries in South America I spoke to so many different young people who I'd never heard of and who weren't in the media but who had such powerful things to say I mean obviously young people are a constituency that that you're a part of but I I would imagine that it's important to bridge generations not least because when you look at people you're very much involved with like Dame Jane Goodall and Sir David Attery I mean they're, they're two people with a combined age of 184 between them I mean presumably this is something that needs to be about all people isn't it yeah no absolutely I think the reason I made this about young people was because that's where I can who I can relate to at the moment and I think it's also powerful to recognize that one of the most affected demographics is going to be young people and they're also doing incredible things already to protect the environment and I said to someone this morning actually that it's quite interesting how lots of the environmental change is almost trickling upwards you would expect education trickles downwards that's how it's always been and now because of social media young people are educating themselves about what's happening through other young people and then kind of indoctrinating their parents to take action which is kind of slightly what I've done I've forced my parents to read my book I don't know if they have completely they say they have but I don't know make sure they don't do an Amazon review that's the (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) Bella needs to take her mugs downstairs my mum will probably write that (laughs) keep her room tidy well, well, but let's start there because in in your you know in your room, I mean in your home, I mean you know that that was where your journey towards becoming a, a campaigner began, and and a, and a realization that you had a, a love of animals. I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I get the privilege of interviewing a lot of people for this show, and what I what I tend to see is that there is a moment of realization that there is something that is so overwhelmingly important to you that you you must you feel compelled to do something about it. Was there a moment for you that you'd you'd share that was actually the kind of the light bulb moment the moment of consciousness that actually now is the time to act now is the time to do something yeah I mean it I think the the first moment was the one I mentioned earlier where I watched that it was this awareness about orangutans and I don't know what it was about that species I mean I, I do know what it was they're an incredible you know intelligent species alike to us but I was fascinated with them and it was for maybe two years I focused on the issue of palm oil mm. but the thing which there have been other moments since which kind of broadened my perspective. One of them was, so during 2019, I was filming a documentary and one of the places we filmed was in Nairobi and we met in Daravi and we met this boy who was 15 called Sushil, who basically said to us, lots of people have come here and filmed it was near the most polluted supposedly most polluted beach in the world and he said lots of people have come to film this and show how terrible it is that your waste is being shipped over here and promise they're going to take action but what are you actually going to do apart from you know just video this and he was so passionate and concerned and he felt like his voice was going to kind of fade into oblivion so I felt a bit of an obligation to retell his story and it is in the book to retell his story and to speak to other young people who Mm. also (laughs) felt that but I, I want to still take you back, Bella, because, you know, the, the things I've been reading about, which I loved reading about, was being back at home with an interest in what you described as diligent ants and lethargic snails in your garden and this enchantment and ever-growing wonderment and love for the diversity of creatures. And I suppose 
what turns that emotional connection into a campaigner? I think, no, yeah, that innate fascination was the groundwork. And I think it's my why. And I think I say to other young people, you know, you need to have your why. You can't expect to go into campaigning and activism and sustain it unless you it's driven by passion. It can't just be driven by anger and railing against a system. Mm. So I was I was that kid who would kind of bring in snails and ants to their house and put them in Tupperware boxes in the kitchen and make mud pies and do all those things. And I don't know why for me when I was 12 that transformed into such a concern, but I think part of it could have been just the recognition that something so fundamental to my childhood and to me as a person which is nature could be completely destroyed mm-hmm. and I think for young people it's very binary it's we're destroying our, the planet we live on and I don't want to live in a world well you can't I can't live in a world without nature and without the environment so I think it's slightly that that youthful fear and also the youthful idealism which I had and I think I still a bit I do a bit now but I'm trying to cling on to it I think you do lose it as you get older which is that I can change everything and nothing's going to stop me but but I suppose in that journey and I suppose you do have to maintain a a grip on the magic and 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 on the and on the determination but Alongside that, we've spoken about, I suppose, a moment of consciousness, but there is also with campaigners, I, I think, a journey to credibility, right? You know, and, and, and with a lot of a lot of younger change makers I've interviewed, the, the issue of credibility has been one that they will have a specific view on. How do I make sure that, or how do I how do I get to be taken seriously for what I do? How do I not get dismissed because I'm seen as too young or whatever it might be? What what was your experience, Bella, in terms of you know taking a message because you've you've taken it globally? I mean, were were there hurdles along? On the way or or was there routine acceptance when you when you when you engaged the funny thing is I never questioned if people would take me seriously when I was you know I was 13 in these kind of decision making spaces and I never saw it as odd and looking back to me it feels slightly strange thinking how did I kind of not feel like an impost imposter mm. but I don't know why I, I think it's because I, I was so passionate about it and I thought of course young people have a massive stake in the future and I know what's happening so I just need to be in these spaces with these with these directors and whoever who are making these decisions and just let them know how important this is to me and that's why young that's kind of that clarity of vision which so many young people have which is what has allowed the youth movement to explode so much and this is why you, you've been interviewing young change makers because it's not vested interests it's just we need to protect the planet and this is how we're going to do it mm. and, and but you've definitely been at the vanguard of <laughs> young campaigners that have helped other young people find their voice so, so part of what you've said there is that it, you never questioned that you wouldn't be taken seriously you just you just got on with it because I mean, you know I, I now look at your cv you know the born free foundation save the save the asian elephants jane goodall institute reserve of the youth land trust i mean you're involved with a you know a great number of globally respected organizations and you've done it at a at a phenomenally young age and you've done it brilliantly well and what i'm sort of thinking is about if somebody's listening to this show thinking well how do i get started on that journey i want to make a difference what's the advice you'd give in terms of the first step i think the first thing is definitely find your why like i said earlier you know you need to be driven by passion because so there's a great quote by mary hegler who's a climate activist who said you can be overwhelmed by the complexity of the problem or fall in love with the creativity of the solution and i think that's what i've realized is that we need to be driven by passion and creativity and imagination and you need to have a vision of not just what you don't want but also the world that you do want and for me that's 
a wilder world where we have wildlife in cities rather than in fragmented pockets, where we have cleaner air, where we prioritise ecology rather than just the economy as our indicator of growth, not just GDP. And I think, so you need to have that vision before you start or develop it as you go along. And another thing is I began kind of independently, but find your community because there's no way we're going to be able to do this as individuals. And now there are so many existing communities that people can attach themselves to. And and you talked about the important of of social media and finding in finding that that community yeah. and, no, and absolutely mm, i mean and there's lots of good seeds coming out of this conversation i think you know we talked about you know i suppose the kind of the consciousness that, that you need to you need to address the credibility the community but i suppose there are also the conditions as our fourth c you know in terms of you know what's actually going on in the world around you that makes now the moment where you can affect change and you know, you've spoken about the pandemic as a as a bit of a lightning rod moment where you said that we can't go back to where we were before it. Is that the kind of the moment that makes change possible? Is there a is there a time that we've now opened up where we might think differently? I, I noticed that Klaus Schwab, the, the World Economic Forum president, talks about it as the, the great reset. I mean, is that what you see from your perspective? Or are we looking at a generation that still doesn't get it? Yeah, the I I think it is a time of reset and the pandemic catalyzed that slightly because what especially in you know in western societies we're conditioned from school into work into the 9 to 5 and then into retirement and not everyone does that of course there are exceptions but we're all conditioned into this same narrative, which once again prioritizes GDP and growth. Narrative is thrown around as a buzzword, but it is so powerful that we can completely change what we value as a society. And I think for me, I'm at this liminal period where I'm transitioning into university. And it's this age where you have to decide, am I going to actually allow myself to to be conditioned into this narrative or am I going to want to completely make that fluid and rebuild something better? And I think the pandemic made people question that. And also, so the climate crisis is making young people question that. So there are these kind of shocks or what people are calling great resets, which force you to question, to take a step back and look at this traditional kind of treadmill that we're forced onto and question if you want to jump off that and create something new. And I mean, and you said it a great, great moment of self-awareness. I thought it, I was reading something that you wrote. You said, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite, but it's impossible not to be because of the, you know, because of the, the way the system works. I suppose that the strong medicine for, for a listener to, to, listening to you is that you know what you're saying is that this is not just about you know the odd sort of bag for life or a reusable cup this is about complete system change this is about something which is going to have to sort of require enormous amounts of change to the way we live right now pick up the story for us Bella in terms of the message to listeners in terms of what is the real change that needs to be affected to make this possible yeah just firstly about the hypocrite thing there's still the stigma around environmental activism you know if you go and live in a box in a forest and eat fruit you're a hippie if you live in the system and engage with the system you know buy food from a supermarket which is probably going to contain palm oil take your car then you're a hypocrite so really whatever you're going to do you're going to be castigated so you've got to step up and speak regardless and what we need is people within the system to to still step up and 
say this is the change we need and the change we need is so as person on a personal and individual level there are different kind of changes which can be implemented we need first of all rewilding as a massive thing i speak about it in many different chapters and that's rewilding of ourselves and rewilding mm. physically of the environment within cities but also in the countryside because the uk is an ecological wasteland and we've lost so many species so that's about government policy about the way that we do conduct ag- agriculture which needs to prioritize nature and work alongside nature all of this system change individuals can help come about by campaigning and by protesting and using social media um, and through our power as citizens and consumers but but i'm still thinking i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep my seas going because it's also about culture isn't it because you know i've interviewed a number of a number of activists in 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 this space including the um including arizona muse and a number of others who have spoken about you know this idea that we've got to make this the thing to do it's got to be fashionable tristram hunt great entrepreneur he said that we've got to prove that this is the best party you know that this is actually rewilding doing things differently this is not just about telling people what to do but but getting them to want to do it want to rewild i mean how do you get people to want to do these things culturally bella i think it's about reframing and redefining activism and Activism isn't all about, you know, toting slogans and signs. It's about trying to create this better world. And I think we commonly think of sustainability as requiring lots of sacrifices. And it does. But those sacrifices are not the end. They're a means to the end. And the end is a better world where we have cleaner cities, where children can play on streets because there are less vehicles in the streets, where there's wildlife in the cities. And I think imagining that world is something so exciting and so enticing that people should be invited to the movement and enticed mm-hmm. by it. Because right now, I think human nature is to want to have fun. And when we're constantly railing against what we don't want, people don't want to join the movement. So it's once again about imagination, about that forward thinking perspective. Mm. In one or two moments in this interview, I, I picked up this sort of like, you know, I, I suppose questioning about, well, how long can you maintain an optimistic outlook, the positivity required to do this? I, I, I suppose if you were to, advise yourself but to advise others and I'm thinking about this you know in terms of hope for the future I mean your your TED talk looks at 2050 and the world that we we might be we might be fighting for you're gonna have to sustain yourself in terms of the positivity to actually proactively make things happen what does give you hope and what are the things that make this a fight you believe you can win I mean I'm I do have to sustain something and I'd much rather sustain the positivity than negativity. And I think what gives me hope is firstly, it's the resilience of nature. And, you know, it sounds a bit somber, but whatever happens, the planet's going to be fine and the environment will be fine. And essentially environmentalism is not about the environment. It's about ourselves and sustaining humankind. And I think we need to just realise that we are going to be able to protect ourselves, but it's the extent to which we do that. So rather than seeing this as a binary, we save the planet or we don't, because that's commonly how people put this. This is actually much more about how much are we going to be able to protect ourselves and other species. So changing that outlook from something of destruction versus saving to actually more of a gradual, how much can we do, gives me hope. And also the fact that so many young people have become engaged when only five years ago I saw almost no young people around me passionate about this provides a lot of hope because look how much has changed in that time. The fact that we have young people, we probably wouldn't have had this five, six years ago, young people speaking on podcasts about their activism and campaigning as much as we do now. And the fact that diversity of voices are being included is important because it's going to allow us to find new solutions rather than kind of these, I don't want to say stale, but there has definitely been a very narrow group of people proposing solutions 
solutions. Let's sort of use that as a segue back into the book for my, my last question, because obviously the, the Anthropocene is it's a time in terms of when human beings have had an impact on the earth and on our ecosystems. Is there a new Anthropocene that we, we should be playing for? I mean, is that the 2050 world that we, we could and should be getting excited about? And is the book the route map towards that? Yeah, I said in the book, you know, there's a, the Anthropocene is defined as a time when people in the future, if archaeologists in the future look at it, what they'll find is a layer of plastic agglomerate because that your coffee cup, you know, that you, you just toss away could be your defining legacy as a human being. And right now, that's the Anthropocene that we're living in. What we could move towards is a time, which doesn't yet have a name, still to be named, stay tuned, but at a time where we, we create this, this world where we value ecology simply over simply growth, which we said a lot. And we could be those generations. And I say generations because many people have said to me, you're inspiring, your generation is inspiring, but this isn't just down to young people. This has to be an intergenerational thing. We could be the generations that actually turn things around. And this is the pivotal moment where we decide if we're going to do that or not. And I think that's so exciting for us that we can be, we can decide whether we're going to be on the right side of history or whether we're kind of consigned to the history books, which won't exist because <laughs> there won't be history books without the environment to sustain us as a species. Being on the right side of history. Bella Lack, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 